This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, a warning is what a lot of investors seem to see in Caterpillar's numbers. That stock down 3.9% at the moment. It's been down as much as, if I'm reading this right, uh, 7% today over the course of trading. Karen Eubelhart is here with us, Senior Industrials Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. So, Karen, I was reading some of our coverage right before we came on air, and you had a very succinct quote uh, at one point in the story that said, it's China. <laughs> I know that's not the whole story, but but take us inside the numbers here. Uh, well, uh, the, the thing that shocked people is Kat's been raising, raising, raising for two years. And uh, now they said we're not cutting, but it's the lower end with hedge clauses on what needs to happen in order to make the low end of the number. So that spooked people. China um, is a headache for them. It's only it's less than 10 percent of sales, but mm-hmm. it's down over 20 wow. percent. So that's a problem. Oil and gas surprised people. That was worse than expected, and they're banking on a turnaround by fourth quarter, which may not happen. So it's a big change in trajectory, right? Raise, 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 and then all of a sudden hope they make the lower end. So is this a caterpillar story, or is this a broader, bigger macroeconomic story? I think it's a broader story. I, um, I, you've seen, with the exception of aerospace, everything's slowing. Hmm. Uh, and aerospace has been phenomenal, but that's a long cycle you know, uh, business. Um, HVAC has been very, very strong. Now that's starting to slow. The distributors showed slow, uh, you know, slow numbers. They're the early cycle stuff. Not falling apart, but definitely slowing. Do you, how do you feel, though, too, about Caterpillar's ability to kind of project their business, you know, and kind of, you know, I hate to use the word guide because that's kind of complimentary, but to kind of really advise the investment community about what's going on at the business? Well, they do have an order book. Um, they do have a backlog, so they have some, some level of visibility, but construction can turn pretty quickly, and then dealers are caught with inventory. So I'd say the shorter cycle is their construction business. They have long lead times in, in and that's about half the company, in the other two businesses. And so when you think about tariffs and how they've played through, trade tensions, how they've played through, is it getting to the point where the companies and therefore folks who watch the companies so closely as you do can start to model what this looks like or is there still uncertainty out there? Uh, there, there, There is still an uncertainty in that it's not just like us against China or us against it's 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 filtering out throughout the world so you're mm-hmm. seeing slow, slower Europe, right. slower, you know, slower China, slower US, slower Mexico so, you know, it's 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 permeating into other, other sectors, not just the place where we're having a direct war. Uh, well, and I do wonder about some of the concerns that we've had at Caterpillar, Karen, over the last few years and some of the investments they made, the companies that they've bought. Has everything kind of worked its way out? Yeah, you know, um, that was the former CEO, and Kat certainly paid a price for that. This new CEO has done a phenomenal job on turning margins around. They're doing record margins in most of their businesses. Construction to get, you know, high teens um, operating margins. That's never happened, and I've been doing this for 30 years. Even with business down. Yeah, the numbers have been excellent. So he's delivering on cost. He's delivering on pricing. um, He's delivering on execution. He can't really fight the end market. Now, the question's going to be how can he tighten it enough cyclically if things are really slowing? 
And so you look at Cat. Who else do you look at to give you an indicator of the broader kind of macro picture here? Um, well, you know, the multi-industrials are in a lot of end markets. And so, you know, you can get a good read that way. Parker Hannafin, which reports next year, next week, is a total total ISM story. And their orders turned negative two quarters ago and got worse in the last quarter. And I think it's going to get worse in this quarter because they're real time with the, with the industrial economy. Karen, I, I know you can't give stock advice, but I do wonder if when you look at this company, I mean, this is a stock that's only up about 4% this year. It's got a decent uh, dividend yield. And I look at, you know, some of the valuations in some of the other sectors of our market. Uh, this seems kind of reasonable, forward-looking PE of under 11. So I, when you look at the dynamics of this company, the fundamentals of this company against the global macro environment, um, does it seem kind of right, rightfully priced? Or well, you know, it's, the thing about cyclicals is they tend to look – um, undervalued when their earnings are really high, right? Yeah. And then when earnings fall apart, all of a sudden they have a 30, 40 times PE and it looks like it's really expensive. Um, you know, I think people need more visibility longer term to, to, to jump in. And, uh, I, you know, I, I think broadly. And frankly, the industrials were really strong most of this year. And I'm yeah. like, mm-hmm. wait a minute, we're going to be cutting numbers. Right. And the market certainly forecasts, but we haven't even started cutting the numbers yet, you know? Right. And so that made me nervous. Some of it was a bounce off of the second half last year they got really creamed but it seemed like you know what are they seeing that i'm not seeing lower interest rates we're not going to loan them enough i think to get mm-hmm. things you know ramping up again so right all right great context as always karen Ubelhart is senior industrials analyst for bloomberg intelligence this is bloomberg business week with carol masser and jason kelly on bloomberg radio well, earlier today, my partner Carol Master and I caught up with Adina Friedman. She is the CEO of NASDAQ. They were out with earnings this morning. Let's hear part of that conversation. Let's talk about the quarter. Um, a little bit of a, it feels like Wall Street reading it as a little bit of a mixed picture. You did have an earnings beat, a little bit light on the revenues. How do you see the quarter? Well, from our perspective, we really focus on organic growth. And in our non-trading businesses, we grew 8% year over year. So we're really pleased with continued progress of our technology business, our index and data businesses, as well as the really healthy environment we're seeing for IPOs and our corporate services business. The trading business has some fluctuation in it in terms of just overall volumes and an impact that we're having in certain parts of our market. We saw that but with the banks, are, right? With the bank's earnings. They all talked about trading. It's less predictable, but at the same time, we're very pleased with the market share we're experiencing in the U.S. equities and options markets, as well as our Nordic equities markets. So from a competitive perspective, we feel very good about our core marketplaces. And at the same time, we manage through different environments that, that operate there. But in our non-trading businesses, that's where we're really driving for growth, and we're experiencing that, and we're very pleased with that. And so talk to us about the market technology business, especially because that's something people are keeping a very close eye on. What are the drivers underneath there? Sure. Well, we actually just came out with a new metric called um, ARR that we launched this quarter that really shows you the recurring revenue streams and looking at kind of how we look at our our growth of our recurring revenue in that business. Market technology today, we provide the technology that powers 130 other markets around the world, and we also provide market monitoring technology for 150 broker-dealer firms. So it's becoming a very scaled business for us. We're investing heavily in growth in that business. So in terms of generating, uh, creating a new uh, next-gen system, technology system to support our clients, moving more towards a platform as a service model, and expanding our market technology implementations beyond just the traditional capital markets into other industry verticals like insurance, um, in, in some cases betting, and other things that we've been getting involved well, in. Well, and you guys have some news about betting and also getting involved with football. 
footballers or footballers, right, in terms of where clients can actually, what, make some bets on them? So we are we are providing the technology to a company called the Football Index. That's a U.K.-based firm, so football in that parlance means soccer. soccer. And, um, and basically the, it allows uh, people to bet on certain players and, and understand. It's almost like fantasy football yeah. in a betting context. And they've created a marketplace that allows people to essentially buy interest in a player and then watch that player um, that player's performance and understand kind of what the returns are from that. More deals like that coming, different sports mm-hmm. or different industries in a similar way? Well, we already are in the horse racing business. We have three yeah. racing authorities that right. use our parimutuel betting platform. And we do see that as, a, as an industry vertical that is obviously very relevant to real-time price discovery and, tra- and high, high transaction processing capacity, as well as the potential for more advanced surveillance technology. We actually have Meaning a module. Well, what? in our, we have a technology that we provide to the industry with regulators, uh, exchanges, and market participants that help them monitor mm-hmm. for manipulation and other nefarious behavior in the markets. Well, you can use that same technology in a betting context as well. And we do have a module that we created specifically for sports betting that would allow you to monitor the behaviors of the p- different people who are betting in your platform. Dean, I've got to ask you, because when you hear about these sports things, I think, you know, you go back, what, a decade or a couple decades, we wouldn't have thought the NASDAQ or any exchanges would be getting into this. But it's a different environment. Does that become much more of your business, those kind of new um, platforms, if you will, versus kind of the core marketing, uh, not core marketing, but core trading? So, I, well, today the trading business, uh, our trading revenue is le- is about 25% of our overall revenue. So it's not 25 that, and 30% okay. depending on the quarter of our overall revenue. Our recurring revenue streams are the 70, 75%. That can come from data and analytics. It can come from our corporate services, and it also comes from market technology. Our technology business, think of us as almost like Switzerland. We can provide that technology to other exchanges. We can provide some of that technology to some of our competitors. Mm -hmm. We provide that technology to markets in very different spaces, not just in the traditional capital markets. And it is the fastest growing part of our business. Does it become the biggest part of your business ultimately? Well, I would love to think of that as an opportunity for us over a very long term, but we obviously have other great parts of our business as well. So when you think about what's out there in terms of potential acquisitions, we've seen a huge amount of consolidation and a lot of mergers and acquisitions across the exchange business, broadly defined. More to be done in the short term in terms of buying buying up things? Well, I, I think we... Number one, our, our primary focus is on organic growth, and we do feel very good about how we're delivering on that. But we do find opportunities to make some acquisitions. We recently bought a company called Sonober that helps expand uh, and catalyze more business into the market technology space. Right. Um, we also bought Investment, which is in our data and analytics business, supporting our investment management firms. And we bought Quandle, which is a very small platform, but it's in an interesting space around alternative data. So we do find ways to leverage technology or leverage leverage acquisitions to help execute our strategy, but we have a very defined strategy. So we want to make sure that our primary focus is how we grow our uh, relations with our clients in an organic way, potentially catalyzed with some acquisitions. Where do I- IPOs fit into all of this? And I think I saw some data point or something that about 80% of new issues actually ended up on the NASDAQ. So tell, tell us about the IPO market, how important that still is to the NASDAQ, and what do you see going forward over the next 6 to 12 months in terms of activity? Well, the IPOs or the corporate services business is another very important 
important business to us. So if you think about our business, we're kind of combined. We have four key businesses, and corporate services is one. The IPOs in general have done, we've had a great pipeline of companies gone public. Mm -hmm. The performance of the companies are up over 20% so far this year. Um, we've had, we do have an 80% win rate so far this year, so we're extremely that excited good, about right? that. <laughs> um, and we've had some great companies choose to come to NASDAQ, companies like CrowdStrike, Real Real, Zoom Media, mm-hmm. uh, TradeWeb, something in our own space. Yeah. There's some really great companies that have been able to tap the public markets this year, and we do see a very healthy pipeline going into the fall. Now, of course, everything's subject to market conditions, but if the markets remain inviting, then you're going to, I think we're going to continue to see some really great companies coming out in the fall. And as you look across that 80% win rate, can you generalize what's getting you the, the win? Sure. Well, we tend to uh, do very well in technology, healthcare, and um, actually financial services, interestingly. Hmm. So a lot of the, uh, a lot of community banks come public on NASDAQ, TradeWeb, so some of the more stru- market structure, fintech companies go public on NASDAQ. Um, healthcare and biotech, we win actually 97% of biotech companies. And, and that's been a very, very active market in terms of finding great investor interest in new technologies around healthcare. And then, of course, in the technology space, we compete every day with our competitor down the street, but we do very well in terms of bringing some amazing companies to NASDAQ. That's Adina Friedman, Chief Executive Officer of uh, the NASDAQ, catching up with Jason Kelly and myself uh, earlier today here at Bloomberg headquarters. You can catch more of that interview on our weekend radio and television programs, but you can also catch even more of the interview. It's going to be featured in an upcoming issue of the magazine, uh, and you'll hear about the future of Bitcoin futures and Facebook's Libra and what she might be doing if she wasn't running the NASDAQ. That's going to be coming uh, in the next few weeks. That was my favorite question and favorite answer that we got for her surprised us a little bit and really showed a side of Adina. I've known her uh, for quite a few years, you know, back to her days as the CFO of Carlisle when mm-hmm. she was on the other side taking a company public. She had been at the NASDAQ, then she went to Carlisle, took Carlisle public, and then came home to NASDAQ to some extent, initially working for Bob Greifeld and now uh, the CEO for the past three years. And it makes sense because, to you know, they've been acquiring some companies and fitting it into the new strategy, really um, leveraging their platform and their technology into other industries. I thought what she had to say about um, sports betting. Yeah, You'll absolutely. You'll hear about, more yeah. about that uh, in the weeks to come. So as we have repeatedly said, we are living in confusing times, interesting and strange times, and that includes the reaction or lack thereof in the oil markets despite heightened tensions with Iran. A story about the strange economics is in our magazine this week. Economics editor of Business Week, uh, Peter Coy, wrote it. He joins us on the phone along with Joel Weber, Bloomberg Business Week editor. And Joel, I want to start with you because, yeah, I mean, I feel like there's a good theme (laughs) about strange times that we're living in uh, in the magazine this week, whether it comes to interest rates, whether it comes to cannabis, a lot of different stories. This one, though, specifically looks at the oil market. So we we started this story about uh, a week ago because, you know, tensions in the Gulf have been flaring. Um, And Peter was like, have you looked at the price of oil lately? Because... It hasn't maybe done what you expected it would do when there's tension, which has gone down. And so he started writing, and then, of course, in the time that it took us to start typing it, some some more action started to happen, which just made the piece get even better. But I think one of the main um, lines that really stuck out to me in the story was that – we talked about this before in the magazine – how much of an influence American oil 
mm-hmm. is having on on the overall uh, conversation, and that it's almost a foreign policy tool at this point, um, which I, I'm sure Peter will will, will explain more um, in a second here, right, Peter? Yeah, it's like the Fifth Fleet, which is the one that operates in the Persian Gulf. Uh, in terms of the foreign policy potency, it's not that the shale oil producers in the Permian Basin or anywhere else are out there to be patriotic or to give Donald Trump a stronger hand against Iran. They're simply acting in their own best interest. But in doing so, every time the price of oil goes up, they ramp up their production. And they can do it uh, to really make more quickly. money. Yeah. yeah, they can do it really quick. The point is, it's not so much that their oil is super cheap, because it's not. The oil coming out of Saudi Arabia is cheaper to produce. But the point is that they can ramp it up really quickly when they need to. And so it's made the oil market more responsive. Supply is more elastic in the economics terminology. And that's devastating to OPEC and specifically to Iran, which loses its ability to uh, put the squeeze on American consumers. And so where does it go from here? I mean, this sort of upside down uh, nature that you describe, you've got some great uh, details because part of this is going to depend on demand for oil going forward, right? And there's some new data today from the Energy Information Administration. First, uh, there were reports that uh, there was a drawdown in, in inventories, and so that's pushed the price of oil up a little bit. But then the tension quickly turned to uh, economic data that made people think that the demand would continue to be soft. And, you know, all you need to do is take a look at a chart of oil prices over the last decade or so. In uh, 2008, when we had uh, oil briefly surpassing $140 a barrel, um, within months, within five months, it was down, uh, I believe, under Forty or thirty—if you can forget the number now—the oil just just tanked, and it was all be, had nothing to do with supply, because that was uh, the supply was still uh, pretty much unchanged. It was because demand crashed with the financial crisis. So uh, it turns out that global demand for oil is a much bigger influence on the price than whatever Iran does to British or tankers in in the Persian Gulf. And and Peter, what? Uh, effects though from the iranian side are they are they figuring this out or you know the is this is such think, a new you know, game yeah it's it, a new, it is a new game. game it's it's a it's a it's an old game with an important new twist namely what we just finished talking about the shale oil so iran you know it's true that if hardliners in iran got the upper hand and said we're tired of this we need to make something happen and they started you know, sinking ships in the Strait of Hormuz and started destroying oil loading platforms on, that really would have a big impact on the price of oil. But few think that Iran will go that far just because it would be, it would invite a huge military response from the U.S. and and others. Um, And, you know, when China's, uh, when Iran's foreign minister spoke with Bloomberg TV last week, it was very specific, you know, we don't, you know, Take, take it with a grain of salt, but they it's, it's certainly true that they don't want to get reputation for, you know, destroying the world oil market. Uh, it wouldn't even be good for them to do that. So the result is that they want to do something, but they don't want to go all the way. So you end up having this perpetual 
chronic low-level harassment, right? Which is uh, it, it's enough to garner headlines, but not enough to wake up oil traders and cause them to drive the price of oil higher. As you end your story, for now, the oil market is Trump's friend and Iran's enemy. So let's see how long that lasts. So <laughs> we will certainly keep I, an eye on I it. I just love that American capitalists are the ones that are like interfering with right. great, greater yeah. greater foreign policy. Yeah. How the times have changed, right? Yeah, it's amazing. With that. Amazing. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Peter Coy, economics editor at Business Week. He's on the phone with us on this Wednesday. His story featured in the upcoming issue at Bloomberg Business Week magazine, and you can read it on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Hema Parmar is here with us, hedge fund reporter for Bloomberg. Really fun story from Fitbits to Roku's hedge funds mine data for consumer habits. One of the most read indeed. So, Hema, tell us how hedgies are figuring out how to use new data. So, you know, it's it's difficult to find yield in this market. You know, stocks overvalued, or some say stocks overvalued, and it's tricky in the bond market too. Um, and so a lot of big hedge funds have allocated money to either creating their own data sets internally or buying up data sets from other um, providers. And they're looking at some interesting spaces, including, you know, uh, Fitbits, Roku's, um, there are this technology that can determine when these uh, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth-enabled devices sort of hit the the, the Wi-Fi space. Yeah. Um, and so you can gauge when these sort of new devices appear in the world, as one of our, our uh, commentators said in the story. Um, and you can gauge, you know, how long people are spending on these devices, where they roughly are, and that can tell you a little bit about how successful these products are. You know, Beyonce says put a ring on it, but we put a number on it usually on all kinds of stories here at Bloomberg. Don't ask me. This is where my brain is going. But what's fascinating, uh, you've got a number in your story. J.P. Morgan Chase said that this idea of spotting trends and patterns in consumer habits, big business, we're talking about a global market for big data, and it could be more than $200 billion by next year. So it's not like, hey, give me some data points. I mean, this is big business yeah, and, and potentially a big advantage. And it can be pretty expensive. Um, certain kinds of data, for example, if we look at credit card data, which is widely used, um, and that can track things like what you're charging to your credit card, receipts that are sent to your email boxes, which kind of sites accept online payments like Venmo. Um, this kind of data can range from between $150,000 to over a million dollars, depending on just how granular it is. But the thing to remember about this kind of alt data is the more funds that use it or the more widely used it is, the less of an edge you might right. have. Right. But also, the advantage, right? Exactly. But then also, if you don't have it to begin with, are you also at a disadvantage because you don't have at least it's that baseline anymore? It's a data anymore. arms race. Well, yes. it is a data arms race. We've been talking about arms races a lot, we haven't have, we? Indeed. But what's interesting is I do mm-hmm. wonder, and it goes back to that bigger argument, who owns all this data, right? That's my data, your data, Jason's data. But so much of it is public. A lot apparently. of it is public, precisely. Yeah. So um, you download apps. Um, you consent to download, downloading those apps. That provides a lot of your personal data. Yeah. Um, you know, puts it out there. There's location tracking. There's um, Twitter sentiments. Yeah. You know, what are people tweeting? Are they do they like this new gadget? That's we track out that there? on the Bloomberg all the time. I yeah. love this yeah. employment it, data a lot. Yeah. It's really good stuff. Hema Parmar, hedge fund reporter for Bloomberg, taking us inside as usual. Put a number on it. Well, put a ring on it. Put a number on it. I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to go toward this. Is the sort of thing that you see. On the show Billions, not surprisingly. All right, Jason Kelly, Carol Master here with you. I go Beyonce, he goes Billions. On a little bit of a goofy Wednesday yeah, yeah. afternoon. I'm driving in my car. 
I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, so it is time for the drive to the close. Jeff Crumpleman back with us. He is Chief Investment Strategist and Director of Equities at Mariner Wealth Advisors out in Cincinnati. That's where he joins us on the phone from Jeff. Great to have you back with Carol and myself. Thanks for having me. All right. So we're in the midst of earnings season. You just heard Charlie Pellet talk about some of the big names that are coming out uh, after the close. What's your take so far on what you've heard? We've got some banks. We've got some industrials. How are you feeling about what companies are saying? We feel pretty good. And I, I think we were a little nervous going into earnings season. But our feeling was just like Q1 when people going into the first quarter earnings season, they were just crabby. They were saying, hey, we're going to have a profits recession. And uh, as it turned out, you know, expectations were for negative earnings. And we actually had plus 3% in Q1. And we kind of expected the same thing for Q2. But it's one thing to expect it, and then it's another thing to actually see it, you know, come about. And we were kind of positioned for the, the news that we're seeing, moderating growth but still positive, which is very healthy for stocks. So are we, you know, I, I think at one point people, folks were wondering whether or not maybe we were going to start to roll over in terms of the equity markets. But, you know, here we are continuing to churn higher, certainly on the S&P 500. Uh, what kind of visibility, Jeff, do you feel like you have on the remaining uh, months of uh, 2019? Well, you know, we actually expect when you look out over the next 12 months, which in, incorporates some of that mm-hmm. uh, period that you're talking about, we look for higher equity prices. And, and we felt in December when many folks, again, were you know, kind of preaching recession and 2019 would be a very difficult year, we thought we would see 20% plus type of returns. And we've seen that early this year, but actually the way we view it is we're just back to where we should have been to begin with. And the data continued to be good. I think it is hard. We are not ready to uh, up our price targets on the S&P 500 uh, at this point for the calendar year until we do see, let's get through the Q2 earnings season, let's see the GDP report that comes out and some other near-term economic data, some of these things on policy. And I think we're biased to want to take up our uh, equity price target for actually the calendar year as well. All right, Jeff, you visited with us a number of times. You know we love talking names. So talk to us about the tech sector specifically and maybe specifically some chip names because I know that's something you've looked at, something we're very focused on as well. Sure. So um, that's been an area that you know we've been positioned in the chips. They've, they're up significantly so far this year. Uh, you've got names like uh, Micron. Uh, technologies that is up, you know, 40% just over the last, uh, you know, couple weeks, actually, last month. So OnSemi and Micron are two uh, of those types of stocks that we own. We got great news from Texas Instruments uh, today. Really not so much great news, but just better than feared. Yeah. And they saw a cyclical uptick. And I think expectations are so low for these companies like OnSemi that, you know, you just need to see 
not Armageddon, and you're going to get a lift because these these stocks are so cheap. Micron got down to three times uh, earnings, which is just just too cheap. It's building in recession. And we just don't see that happening. You know, it's funny. I just put up on my Bloomberg uh, charts of the SOX and the Philly Semiconductor Index and the Transportation Index. And, you know, they are very similar uh, in terms of the trading patterns uh, for the most part. Not, you know, necessarily one (laughs) correlation, but nonetheless, very similar patterns. These are often things, you know, indices that we watch in terms of what's going on in the overall economy. Um, When you look at them, I don't know, what do they tell you? Uh, again, I think that it goes back to our, our thesis was that folks got crabby expecting uh, poor returns this year because they felt policy would lead us to negative earnings growth. So earnings were going to go from great to negative and horrible, and you were going to see the economy go from 3% GDP growth to recession. And we felt, just like my mom says, Jeff, moderation in all things, son. <laughs> what we saw was moderation in growth. So expectations and price was built for recession, and the data comes out. We call it the wash, rinse, repeat cycle. People get you know, but, nervous. Yeah. They expect worst case outcomes. The data is released. It's not great. It's not robust, but it's positive, and it's healthy. And that steady eddy type of result gives you a lift, a lift when pricing got so attractive in these types of names and these cyclical names that have just been ignored. But I, let me just throw in two names because we talked about them today. Caterpillar certainly seeing some pressure here, and that is also another important indicator for the global economy. BAS, BASF, excuse me, the chemical company, global chemical company, also some disappointment. So, you know, does that make sense with your thesis that things look pretty okay? I think so because, you know, this is a uh, – market of stocks, not a stock market. And so you need to be selective. And for example, we own Knight Swift, a trucking company. It's up 50% this year. And Federal Express, because Mm -hmm. in those names, we either see good domestic growth as we look out over the next 12 months, or in the case of Federal Express, secular growth in e-commerce. And they had some execution issues that they're pushing through. And as you probably know, Goldman just put that on their conviction buy list. Uh, guys like Jim Cramer are starting to tout the stock, and I think it's for good reason. Uh, they've invested in the business, and you've got mid-teens growth, 30% dividend growth, priced at 10 times earnings, um, and it's just been ignored. So, you know, for every cat, and by the way, I think their U.S. construction business was actually fairly solid. It was the international that hurt, which doesn't mm. surprise me. We don't own cat, but we own these other names where it is visible, and you can see you know, an acceleration in earnings or at least better than feared, um, you know, results that people were projecting. I got to say, Jeff, we like talking to you, but did you really just say somebody that's part of the competition (laughs) endorsing a stock on our air? Oh, I didn't. You know, I didn't even know I was insulting. Know your audience, Jeff. I thought the person, not the the, – Network. So Not the rival. Apologies. Not the rival. Just kidding. <laughs> All right. Jeff Krobelman, always good to catch up with you. I uh, hope you're having a good summer out in Cincinnati. He is Chief Investment Strategist and Director of Equities at Mariner, Mariner excuse me, Wealth Advisors. Joining us on the phone from the Midwest. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.